know what your week has been like today, this week. I hope it was a good week. But I know that some of our congregants this week got bad news. I know that some of you have been dealing with bad news for a long time. Hard things, difficult things physically. We all live in a country that's kind of conscious that the economy isn't what it used to be. We're all kind of aware of the danger of radical Islam. We hear about that all the time. We all kind of realize our lives hang by a thread. My goodness, you know, uh, we have a young girl that goes out to drive to school or to her, to her job and, and uh, a granddaughter of one of our, our members and suddenly she's in a horrifying accident and her life hangs by a thread and she's, she's doing well, she's thriving, she's surviving, but surgeries and difficulties, my goodness, you just, you know, you never know what a week is going to throw at you. And the world that we live in is sometimes confusing and painful and difficult and hard to untangle. And it's a time like that that you want to think, well, how do, I, how do I understand my world? And how do I respond to my world when bad news has come my way? When things aren't the way that I hoped that they would be? That heartache or hardship has come to me. As Christians, that's a really good time for us to say, wait a minute, we have a Bible, and the Bible actually has future prophecy in it. The Bible's future prophecy teaches us what's going to happen for sure in the future, and we can build our lives on the truth of the Bible, and that's what we have like today. What's going on in my world, and how do I understand it? That's exactly what our text today is going to teach. What is going on in our world And how do I understand it? And how should I respond? And now we're in Revelation chapter 12. And the book of Revelation is a vision from Jesus given by God, the Father, and reveals what's going to happen before his return to establish his kingdom on earth. It's a a fascinating book. And you've been studying it with us, and you can come back week after week. We're going about a chapter at a time. And what you'll notice is that the, the Revelation is basically chronological. In other words, one thing happening after another in a chronological sequence. But every once in a while, it's interrupted by a kind of an overview. And that's what Re- Revelation 12 is. It's a part of an of interruption. In a way, there, there are parts of the, of the Revelation that have talked about what's happening from God's point of view, from heaven's point of view. But Revelation 12 is interesting, and it's helpful because it helps us to understand why our world is so evil and so broken, because it helps us to see life from, really, from the devil's point of view, with that in mind. And so this is what we have in in Revelation chapter 12. And to help you, we're going to read the text, it's 17 verses, and to help you to really understand it, watch for these three kind of movements in the text. In the first six verses, what you're going to see is that three key players are identified and they're symbolic. They're three key symbolic players that are identified. And they're going to be involved in a great, great conflict. This is in the first six verses. You'll see those symbolic players. And to understand the passage, you want to understand who they are. The next chunk at the center section is going to be a war, the conflict. And the war and the conflict are going to be in heaven. In other words, what the Bible is going to describe is a spiritual conflict that helps us really kind of make sense of what's going on on the earth and this conflict in the heavens, if you will, with these key characters that we identify. Then the last section, this conflict is going to move to earth. 
So it's basically the combatants in verses 1 through 6. Then in, in verses 7 through 12, you have the war in heaven. And then in verses 13 through 17, you have the war on earth. And after that, we're going to say, well, why is this important to me? And it's very important to you, I tell you. So now let's just read the Bible. This is, um, take your Bible, if you have one with you, otherwise just listen along as we read from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and Ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. This is the war in the heavens now. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Now the war on earth. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she should fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so think about this. This passage matters to your life because this passage kind of explains in ultimate and spiritual terms, it kind of helps us untangle what's going on in our world. Okay, if these things are literally true in the spiritual realm, that makes a lot of sense about what's happening on earth and in my troubled life. So let's go over this. This is an, it's a fascinating thing. Did you notice the characters? There was this dragon. There was this woman. There was this child. Now, now some of it's kind of easy, right? The dragon is, say it out loud, who is that? It's the devil. It's Satan. And it's, he's named. It's very clear. And if you are a little bit familiar, if you've been to Sunday school for a while and you're a little bit familiar with the things that talks about Jesus, who's the child? I gave you a hint. Jesus is the child, and it's very clear. He's the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So we know that the dragon is the devil and the child is Jesus. Who is this woman, though? 
Don't answer that because I'm going to pretend like I'm going to teach you that and you didn't know, okay? So the woman is the one that's harder to identify. In chapter uh, 12, of course, in the first part, it's kind of like, hmm, this is interesting. A great sign appeared in the heaven. This is symbolic, right? Not a real woman, but a sign or a symbolic woman. She's a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of 12 stars. I remember when I was a kid and I read this for the first time, I was actually a 17-year-old pastor trying to figure this out. I'll never forget, I was coming, I walked home from school, and I had this little typewriter stand at the end of my bed, and I would sit down at the typewriter stand, and I would just look at my Bible, then I would type out what I'm going to say, and I remember going, I have no idea what I'm going to say about this. Who is, did, did you think that way with the first time you read this? Like, who is this strange, unusual, who is this mysterious woman? Well, here's a helpful way of figuring this out. There are four symbolic women in the Revelation. One of them is found early in the Revelation, and she's called, she's a symbol, but she's called Jezebel. That's probably not good. How many of you not named your daughter Jezebel today? Not too many of you. Yeah, so that's probably not good, right? She was the symbol of pagans, and you can, you can see that very clearly. Jezebel is symbolic of pagans. Then in chapter 17 of Revelation, you have this other one. It's very interesting. It's like the, the scarlet woman. And she's called a harlot, or in the Bible terms, a whore. This is not good either, by the way. Yeah. And, and she's symbolic of an apostate church or false religion. Always has been, always will be an apostate church or false religion. Apostate is a fancy word meaning you claim to be a follower, but you've gone away from it. The idea here is a false religion. And the scarlet woman is symbolic of false religion. So you have a woman named Jezebel who's symbolic of paganism, a woman who is a scarlet woman who's symbolic of false religion. Then you have the, another woman that's a symbolic woman in Revelation, and she is the bride of the lamb, the lamb's bride. And if you know the Bible, you know Bible terminology, if you just kind of read your Bible, you realize that the bride of the lamb is the church. The church is the people who have followers of Jesus Christ. We who believe in Jesus are followers of Christ. He's called our groom. We're called his bride. It's described like a love relationship. In Revelation chapter 19, you see that the bride is coming with the, the bridegroom, if you will. And uh, they've had a marriage supper. It's gonna be a, they've had a marriage, and they're going to have a, a marriage supper. So, so that kind of leaves us with, well, who is this woman? You have a woman who's Jezebel, the, symbolic of the pagans. You have a woman who is the scarlet woman, symbolic of false religion. You have a woman who is the bride of the lamb, who is the church. But you also have another player in Revelation over and over again. You obviously have Israel. And we believe that it's very clear that this woman is Israel. And here's another reason why this becomes very clear. Remember what we said when you reach one of those kind of mysterious things in the Bible and you go, what are all these symbols, moon and stars and all of that? What do these mean? Well, what? It's, it's not as confusing as it looks at first. You can look around it and you can study what it says around it. And sometimes the symbols will be identified. So it's, just, it's a kind of literature that captures your attention. It's kind of like, it's like watching Star Wars. There's like themes in it, you know. And for some people, that really captures their attention. They'll watch 17 different iterations of Star Wars. It's like, it's ain't college football, but for some people, it interests them like college football, like, like normal people like college football. And, and so you got that. And then, but so here it is, this symbolic literature. I just lost all the Star Wars fans. They're just like, I'm leaving. That's it. I'm done. Sorry about that. So, but, but what you have here is symbolic literature, right? When you look in the near, it's like, what is this? You don't, if you don't see anything there, you expand your search to the rest of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Because remember, in the Old Testament are 500 different references to stuff 
that it talks about in Revelation. So if you were like a Jewish person and you really understood the Old Testament, a lot of these things would immediately become evident to you, and this is one. Because there are these patriarchs in the Old Testament, and Joseph was one of them. Did you ever read about Joseph? He had a dream, right? Remember this? He had a dream. And in his dream, it's, it's recorded in Genesis 37. He has a picture that's very much like this. The people, most of the Jewish background people that would have been listening to this would immediately have recognized, oh, he's talking about the nation of Israel. And that's who, this is who this player is. So now, to, to, when you identify these characters, if you will, then you see what's going on very clearly. And it's just this. It's very simple. You can sweep through this passage and you can see one thing very clearly. There is a devil He hates Jesus, the child that's born out of Israel, that comes out of Israel, and he wants to devour him, and that's happened in history. Satan has done things to try to destroy Jesus, right? And he's been unable to do that, and was defeated by Jesus' death on the cross in a way that he didn't, that the devil didn't understand. Jesus' death actually defeats Satan, and he's dealt a defeat, and so he's kind of like in a short chain in a way. He's he's about to be condemned, but he's allowed to have uh, some access even to the, to the heavenlies and even to the throne of God. And this is recorded there. So Satan was an angel, if you recall, who was lifted up in pride and fell, was cast out of heaven, and took a third of the angels with him. And you see a symbolic reference to that when you say his great tail swept a third of the angels out of heaven. And so these are the spiritual beings in the world. You, you actually have good angels and you have fallen angels. That's it. And the devil is one of those, fallen angels. And, and, and uh, that's what's being described here in this passage. You have this conflict. If you sweep through the passage, what you just see is what the Bible is saying is here's how you need to understand your world. Understand your world like this. There's something going on that you don't see. There's a God who is good and kind and benevolent. He has an enemy who wants to destroy him. If he can't destroy him... He will destroy his people, Israel. If he can't destroy his people, Israel, he'll destroy his people, the church. If he can't, he'll go after anybody that he made or loves. That includes, this is like, this is getting personal. You see what I'm saying? This means this church. This means your family. This means you. This makes sense of your world to understand there is this spiritual um, conflict that's going on. And one of the key players in this conflict are the Jewish people. The key player And the cosmic conflict of the ages are the Jewish people. And when you get to the end of the Bible, the Jewish people are still together as Jewish people, and they're a part of the conflict. That's why you will listen in the presidential debate. Sometimes somebody will ask, "What do you support the nation of Israel? Because America has traditionally supported Israel's right to exist. Israel wouldn't exist, humanly speaking, as a nation, if it hadn't been for the support of the United States humanly speaking. And so they'll ask the presidential candidates, do you support the right of Israel to exist? Because the entire Middle East, the Arab Middle East is, is concentrating on, many of them, on destroying Israel and, and saying that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. But the Bible actually teaches that Israel is going to exist. Have you ever thought about this? How did you come to believe whether or not the Bible was true? How was that for you? How did you come to believe whether or not the Bible was true? How many of you say, I I remember coming to believe the Bible is true? Raise your hand. You remember? Okay. How many of you say, I've just always accepted the Bible is true? That's fine. And then some of you, I won't have you raise your hand. You're going, I'm still working on that right now. I'm still working on that. Every once in a while, I wonder, you know, is the Bible true? So let me help you on this. There are different ways that you can look at the Bible 
to decide if the Bible is true. I listed a few of them. For instance, you could study what they call apologetics, evidence for the resurrection. And people have written fascinating books about evidence for the resurrection. And it's almost Easter, so it would be a great book for you to read, say something by Lee Strobel on the evidence for the resurrection and all of that. You could work through that. Did Jesus Christ, did a man really die and rise again? If he did, you might. I mean, I always have a a rule of thumb. If you died and rose again, I'm going to listen to you right? If Jesus died and rose again, yeah, you might want to read his book. He might have something to say. You could study the evidence for the resurrection, and that would be very, very rich. Or you could study manuscript evidence for the Bible. You know, there are existing manuscript fragments that are copies of copies of the original writings of the Bible. Did you realize they're spread all over the world? They gather them together, computerize them, and you could actually study what they call textual transmission or manuscript evidence. Those are fancy ways of saying, how in the world did we get our Bible and how do we know that the Bible is so consistently you know, accurate? How do we know that what the Bible says is what the Bible actually originally said? And you could study manuscript evidence, and you could come to confidence that the Bible is true. Or what you could do is what some have done, is you could read the Bible, the geography of the Bible, and then you could go places in the world and other places in the world, and you could study the geography of the world, and you could see that the geography of the Bible, it wasn't just written by, you know, kind of old ancient, you know, Uh, ignorant, unlearned shepherds, but the the, the geography of the Bible actually matches the geography of the world. If you've been to the Holy Land, you just see that. It's just crazy. You just see the specific things the Bible refers to are real time and space places. You could do that, or you could study the history of the Bible. You could take human history, like Josephus and others. You could lay it up against biblical history. You could compare those, and you could realize, wow, the Bible isn't just a book of just little happy stories or fables, but it's actually space and time. You could do that. Or you could do the archaeology in the Bible where they've been digging and they find things that prove the, the veracity or the truth of the Bible. And I could talk all day about that. And I'm not that smart, but I could talk all day about cool things that I've read about how we know that the Bible is actually true based on things they've dug up, literally dug up. But let me tell you today, here's one thing for you to consider when you think about how do I know the Bible is true, or how can I just be confident that the Bible is true? And I will say, here's the one thing you might want to think about. You might want to think about the nation of Israel. Now I want to show you something here. It's kind of a slide. I asked Pastor Stephen to make this for me. The nation of Israel is an oppressed people group, right? They were, they were, they've been oppressed over and over again. They've been persecuted over and over again. And I know that because I've read a bit of history. And you think about the Holocaust. You think about AD 70 and, and Titus sweeping into Jerusalem. And so to this week, I thought about, you know, it's amazing that God says, I've, you know, I've gathered a people, and I'm going to bless this people, and I'm going to protect these people, the, the, the Jews, and I'm going to work with them. And, the, and actually, the Bible actually teaches there's going to be a 1,000-year Jewish kingdom in the future. So we know if the Bible is true, and it is, we know that if the Bible is true, then there are going to be a Jewish people in the future. But the Jewish people have been so terribly persecuted and so terribly oppressed. So I looked it up on the internet to see what's the history of the persecution of the Jewish people. And I found a, this file. I asked Mr. Stephen to make a slide out of it. It's going to actually scroll. It scrolls because it's so amazingly long. These are examples of incidents of persecution, national persecution against the Jewish people, and the Jewish people still survive. Just take a look at that for a minute. Are you reading it? you got to trust me on this. So God said, I'm going to gather a little nation of people. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to be 
harmed. They're going to be persecuted, but they're going to survive. And you have up until the Holocaust, and these people have been scattered out through different lands, don't even have a nation of their own. And shortly after the Holocaust, God allowed them to gather back into the land as a nation. My friend, that alone should cause you to realize that the Bible is true. Because the Bible, what the Bible says, happens. And this is an amazing thing. Someone, had sa- someone said this. They said, um, Frederick the Great asked his chaplain to give him one commanding evidence for the existence of God. And his chaplain said to him, in answer to that, if you want one commanding evidence for the existence of God, I would say to you, the amazing Jew, the amazing Jew, the resilience of the Jewish nation. Jesus said this, there'll be great distress in the land, wrath against this people, the Jews, they'll fall by the sword. They'll be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And the Bible says he's going to watch over Israel, right? Psalm 121.4, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Israel is going to survive. They're surviving in unbelief today. Sunday and during, during this period of time that we call the tribulation, they will actually, many will come to be regathered in the land in belief. This is what the Bible says. And so this woman in this passage represents Israel, and Israel is going to have a real and national future. And if you know the Lord, and if you love the Lord, and if you love the Bible, you understand the Abrahamic covenant says, I'll bless those who bless Israel, and I'll curse those who curse Israel. And you remember the story of the hiding place? The hiding place is a story about uh, Corey Ten Boom, her, do- her father was named Casper Ten Boom, and he was a Bible-believing Christian who understood that the Jews should be sheltered from the persecution, and so he made secret hiding place in his home, and he was eventually put in prison and died, and his daughter died, and Corey survived to talk about it, but he, was, he said this, if I die in prison, it will be an honor for me to have given my life for God's ancient people. He understood that the Bible taught that the, that the nation of Israel was going to survive. But the nation of Israel survives against this tremendous onslaught of hatred against it that we see here in this passage, which we will not thoroughly teach every little piece of it. But you will clearly get the idea as you go through this, as we read through this, that what we have is a conflict. And the conflict is between Jesus and Satan, and Satan is going to try to attack Israel, and, and has done that, because he wants to get to Jesus. If he can't get to Jesus, he attacks his people. And that's exactly what happens here. In chapter 2, or verse 2, uh, the woman gives birth to a child in travail. In verse 3, another sign appears, this dragon. He's red, has seven heads, he's great, ten horns, seven diadems. The red color represents death and danger. He's warlike. The seven heads represent, and we'll study this later, seven consecutive world empires mentioned there in Revelation 17. The horns represent a ten-nation confederacy in the end time. It's first referred to in Daniel. It will be referred to again. These are symbols. The diadems or the crowns, they're symbolic of his national or political power. And there'll be more on this in future chapters. Immediately next week in chapter 3, we'll see that. Verse 4 describes the fall of Satan, his original fall, and the fall of a third of the angels and his desire to destroy the child. Verse 5, clearly this is Christ. He rules the nations. That's a quote from Psalm 2. And he's caught up. That's 
an evidence of his, that's a reference to his ascension. This quickly spans the earthly ministry of Christ and brings us up now into the tribulation period, which will happen, we believe, after the church is caught up to be with the Lord. This period of time, the great tribulation, the second half of the tribulation, is described in the Bible over and over again in different terms that are given specific lengths of time, 42 months, a time that's in chapter 11 and chapter 13 of Revelation, a time times and half a time, that's in verse 14 of the passage we're studying today. Three and one half years, that's in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Have I lost you? Stay with me. Here's what I'm saying. The Bible teaches an ancient prophecy in Daniel, a prophecy that there would be a time of Jacob's trouble, that God was going to allow his people Israel to go through a horrifying time, which would actually bring many of them to himself. That's the time that we're studying here. And why is it happening? It's happening because there's a real devil, there's a real God, Jesus is real, there's a conflict going on spiritually that's actually working its way out on the earth in such a way as you can read about it on the evening news. You can hear our politicians arguing about it when you watch the debates. This is real-time stuff that we're in. This is real. This is is how to understand your life. So you go to chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, and you have Michael and his angels fighting, and the dragon, his angels, the devil, and Michael, the archangel, the devil and his demons in verse 8 lose. In verse 9, they're cast out. And the various names of Satan are given, the devil, the slanderer, Satan, the adversary. He's also called there in verse 10, and if you know anything about the devil, you know this is true, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And have you ever felt that? You ever felt kind of like a demonic accusation against you? It's like somebody's throwing up your past against you in a kind of a demonic and a difficult way. That's what he does. And then there's this loud voice from heaven. It's in verses 10 through 12. This is the passage that we should just make a whole series of right here. But it's just one of those, the voice from heaven, a loud voice of authority. And it's coming from heaven in verse 10. And this is a passage, look at the passage there in chapter 12 and, and verse 10. And notice, then I heard the loud voice that says, now salvation is strengthened, the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. The accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast out. For some reason, for the glory of God, God allowed Satan to have access to the throne to accuse the brethren. Over and over again, he points to the blood of the cross. You can't accuse the brethren because they're under the blood of the cross. You can't accuse somebody that they were guilty, but they're redeemed and they're bought by the blood of Christ and they're cleansed by the blood. That's just like, this is like you and me. Done things are wrong. Satan accuses us to our hearts. He accuses us to, to God. God says, he re- references the blood of Christ where Satan was defeated. But there's going to come a time here that Satan then will be cast out of heaven. And this is the time that's being referred to now. So it's a great celebration in heaven. But it's, so it's, it's, they said, let's rejoice. It's kind of what they say. On the other hand, it's a time of woe on earth. Because like, oh, guess who showed up on earth now? The dragon that was cast out of heaven. By the way, in any message, in any passage, you should look for the, for the path that goes to the cross. Right? In any message, you should look for the path that goes straight to the cross. And it's in verse 10 there. Can you see it? Do you see that? That should make your heart beat fast. You should realize, listen, what the Bible teaches is this. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you've broken God's law. Yes, you are guilty. Yes, you deserve to die and go to hell. Yes, you're worse than anybody really knows. But 
God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross, willing to pay the price for all of your guilt and shame and take the accusation away from you. And if you believe in him, you'll be cleansed and forgiven, and no one, not even the devil himself, can accuse you. That's the amen part right there. Go ahead. Yeah. Celebrate that. That means Jesus Christ can cleanse the vilest sinner. Praise God. That's the path to the cross. And the worship in heaven is great, but the woe on earth is great. And then in verses 13 through 17, you have three relentless attacks on the earth. In verse 13, he attacks the woman. In verse 15, he sends a flood of persecution. In verse 17, this doesn't work, and he's enraged, and he begins to attack all believing Jews and Gentiles. But God, in all of these things, if you read the text carefully, you see that God directs and he protects and he supernaturally empowers, and he provides, and the people may not die, they may die, but they will not perish. Listen to me. Christians may die, but they will not perish. Perish means you die, and you go to hell, you're separated from God, and your life comes to that end. You may die. We may suffer. We may die. We may not make it to the rapture. We may have cancer. Our heart may stop. We might get hit by a bus or a tractor, or something, or we may just die of boredom while the pastor's preaching. You know, you just don't know. But you may die, but you will not perish. But, and just think about that. You, they may, the doctor may say to you someday, you have cancer, but he cannot and he would not take away your eternal life. This is the great hope of the Christian. This is the great powerful thing that puts the wind under our wings. This is the thing that puts the spring in our step. This is the thing that gives us an eternal optimism because Jesus Christ paid for our sin. Are you a follower of Jesus? That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you just turned over a new leaf and you're trying to be good and hope a little lady's across the street. I mean, you really ought to do that, you know, but that's not what it means. What it means is once you are an enemy of God and you are on your way to hell and you are under the condemnation of your sins and Jesus Christ took that away from you and you no longer have to labor under that guilt and accusation, even if somebody tries to blackmail you, praise be unto God. This is what's going on here. So in order that this won't be just a Bible lecture, let me make a few brief applications. First, the invisible world is real. And the effects of the invisible world are felt in the visible world, in the material world. And we cannot, we should not, we must not. Listen, don't ever try to understand anything human without a reference to things that are divine. Don't understand, don't try to understand what materially is happening. Don't ever try to understand what's happening politically. Don't ever try to understand what's happening in our church. Don't try to understand what's happening in your family without reference to what's happening in the heavenlies. Because here's one of the things that happens. If I just, if I just look at a person, they may be misunderstanding me or hurting me, and I think they are the enemy. But when I read my Bible, I go, no, no, no. They are the victim of the enemy. They are the object of God's potential love. They are a person that could become my brother in Christ. They're an object of the enemy. As bad as they might be, as dark as the, their life might be, as hard of, of things that have happened to them, when we, that helps us to see the world that we're in and understand it, what's going on. This is, it helps us to understand this is serious stuff. This isn't fantasy. It's spiritual. It's not physical, but it's spiritual with physical realities. It's serious. It's also, when we read this, we realize it's looming. In other words, it's imminent. This stuff could explode and could come to fulfillment at any time. It's not just history. You understand? 
I'm almost done. But, but it's prophecy. It's not just history. It's prophecy. Do you see that? If what I'm saying is right, we have in our hands a Bible that reads like a newspaper 100 years from now. How powerful is that? Now I know how to raise my kids. Now I know how to treat my wife. Now I know how to operate in the church. Now I know how to spend my time. Now I know how to invest my time and resources and energy and efforts. Because there is a kingdom and it's eternal. And Jesus is the king. And Satan hates him and he hates me. And now I understand my world. It makes sense of everything. Satan attacked Jesus. So Satan attacked the Jews. So Satan will attack the church. And Satan will attack you. And he will attack your family. And he will attack this church. And he will attack our nation. Remember... People are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. Satan will try to seduce you. He'll try to deceive you into believing that God is not good and get you to sin. And you know that because you've all had experience with that. It's like eating junk food. You want it, then you feel really bad the next day. Why did I do that? That wasn't good for me. That was bad. That was deadly. Satan will seduce you to deceive you to do evil by making you doubt. Listen, he'll make you doubt the goodness of God to get you to do evil. And track with me. And then as soon as you do what wrong, what will he do? If he has some experience, you know. He will accuse you and make you doubt the grace of God. He will deceive you and make you doubt the goodness of God. And then the moment that you fail, he will accuse you and make you doubt the grace of God. But we're not going to fall for that trap, church, are we? No. We know that God is good and we know that he is gracious. And the reason that we know that is because he sent his son, our savior, Jesus Christ, who defeat the plans of the devil. Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to damn you. He wants to divide, separate you from all that's good. He wants to divide kids from their dads. He wants to divide husbands and wives. He wants to divide the church. He wants to distract people from God. He wants to defile them. He wants to discourage you. But on the other hand, there's another key player who, by the way, is ultimately victorious, and he is God. And God directs in every one of these passage, you see, he directs his people into a special place. He provides for his people. He empowers his people, and he protects his people. So the big epic question for you, the answer is whose side are you on? This would be really important. Whose side are you on? Remember in the Old Testament, there are a couple examples of this. Moses, he comes down, there's the golden calf, they're worshiping uh, a false god, and Moses is going to say to them, all right, who is on the Lord's side? There's a great old hymn. Who is on the Lord's side? That's the question today. This is the real issue in your life. Whose side are you on? Are you solidly, clearly, openly, overtly, courageously stepping over on the God's side and saying, you will be my God and I will follow you to the death, but I know that I will never perish. This is what Moses has said, this big epic choice. Joshua, following later on, there was a time when the nation was at a crossroads. Joshua was about to die. Do you remember what he said? He, he gave a sermon, if you will, and he talked to them about the goodness of God. And he mentioned over and over, remember how good God has been. Remember how faithful God has been. Remember how trustworthy God is. Remember all the gifts that God has given you. And then he says this, Moses, or, sorry, Joshua says, now choose, remember this, choose you this day whom you will serve. It's still the same question. Who are you going to serve? And then he says this, and I've always loved it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Today I want to challenge you 
There is a God, and he's good and loving and benevolent and kind. He'll protect and provide and empower you. He'll direct you and provide for you. But you must choose him through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a devil and his demons who want to destroy you and damn you and suck you into hell and destroy your life. You must choose God, and he will protect you. Now listen carefully as I conclude. It's not just a one-time choice, right? Salvation, listen carefully. If you didn't listen to the rest, hear me now. Hear me, young people, listen to me. Listen careful. This is important. I've prayed for a long time about this. I've thought for hours about it. It isn't just like you receive Christ or you don't. That's obviously very important. But this choosing life thing, this choosing God and choosing to go away from Satan and his offers, it's the very stuff of life. It, your whole life depends on it. I mean, I don't want to be silly or, or descend into the mundane, but if, if, I, if I decide I like uh, chocolate cake, I often refer to this with chocolate frosting, um, the, the way it's going to be in heaven, thick, you know, chocolate frosting. If I, if I come home from a day at work and I've gone without eating, I eat a half a cake, <laughs> that's a deadly choice. You know, we're laughing, but, you know, that, that ain't good. You, you know, the, eventually the doctor, you never, you never went to a doctor and they said, man, you, you need a half a chocolate cake. You need that. Man, that gout flare-up, you get a half a chocolate cake, you're going to be good. You just eat a half a, they never, you ever hear a doctor say that? I'd probably pay a doctor extra to say that, but, you know, you don't hear a doctor, you know, you go to the doctor and they go, man, you know, you haven't had enough barbecue brisket. You need a couple more pounds at a serving of barbecue brisket. You're not going to tell you that. You're just going to say, you need to eat your vegetables, and you need to eat more vegetables and fruit, walk around the pond every day, you know, right? Think about that. Your life, the, the vitality of your life, the, your health, depends on making a thousand good choices over hundreds of days. Am I right? Your spirituality is the same way. It depends on making the light, choosing God's way. And looking at that choice, do I look at that or not look at it? Do I read that or not read it? Do I spend my time here or not spend my time here and say, well, God, you're my king. What do you want me to do? I'll do what you want me to do. And that's a life choice. Or then when you say, you know, I'm going to choose to be hurt. Or I'm going to choose to be angry. Or I'm going to choose to slander. Or I'm going to choose to gossip. Or I'm going to choose to lust. Or I'm going to choose to cheat. Or I'm going to choose to steal. All those things, they're death choices. Understand, in the heavens, there's a great conflict between heaven and hell, between God and Satan, and you have the choice to make whether you'll follow the Lord, and you have the choice, divinely empowered choices will determine your destiny in this life.